Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here today with a very special guest. I am joined by Dr. Seth Shostak of uh, SETI, the Center for SETI Research. Uh, Dr. Shostak, how are you doing today? Well, uh, modestly okay. I mean, you know, I didn't crash the car driving to work. I didn't, you know, run over any animals. I guess I'm okay. <laughs> it's good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, oh, my goodness. It's, uh, I'm so excited to have you on the show. It's, it's really funny. So the first time that we, I guess, the, well, the first and only time we've met so far was at UFOCon in Los Angeles, um, where uh, it was funny. I got put on a panel on uh, podcasting about UFOs. And so I was there with a bunch of other shows and I was probably, I would, I would wager one of the more skeptical and scientifically based of the shows that was on the panel. Uh, you know, that kind of ran the gamut from shows that did, uh, you know, just taking experience or claims and hearing what they had to say versus kind of our show where we look at more of the hard science behind these kinds of things and the history of science and philosophy and all that. And uh, they were, you know, they told us, well, there are, here are some people that will be at the conference that you can interview and talk to. And if there's anyone on the list that you'd be interested in, let us know. And, I, you know, I kind of figured, eh, you know, it's going to be it's going to be folks like Giorgio and whatever. You know what I mean? Um, I, I didn't expect there to be anyone that I wanted necessarily to talk to. And then your name was on the list and I was so excited um, and I kind of nerded out. So I'm really, really happy to have you on the show here finally. Well, all I can say is I wish my hair were more like Giorgio's. <laughs> Don't we all? Oh, my goodness. Man, that guy, uh, that guy's hair just gets bigger and bigger. Why don't you? Uh, <laughs> why don't you give listeners a little bit of background on sort of what you do if they haven't heard of you before? Well, I'm here at the SETI Institute. We're in the Silicon Valley, south of San Francisco, and this organization, which has about a hundred scientists actually, uh, is interested in the whole question of life beyond Earth. Now, almost all of those scientists, nearly all, are doing what's called astrobiology. So they're interested in life in the solar system, for example, under the sands of Mars, or maybe under the ice of places like Europa or Enceladus, you know, moons of Jupiter and Saturn. So uh, it's a nonprofit research organization devoted to these sorts of studies. And one thing that we also do, and indeed what was our first project, was was SETI. And we're, we're trying to eavesdrop on signals that uh, extraterrestrials might be sending our way. So one thing that I, I – so this show we kind of try to – focus on or look at the intersection, I guess you'd say, between, you know, uh, economics, society, sociology, and and science, and how it relates to things like pseudoscience and, you know, kind of science on the cutting edge. And one thing that we always ask ourselves, or one thing that the show, we, we often try to get to the bottom of are questions like, you know, why is it that people believe weird things? And in some of those cases, there are there's a side of it that is the kind of weird side, you know, the sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, you know, woo or spooky kind of side. And then there's the side of it that is scientifically valid. SETI is such an interesting case because it is, it's one thing that UFO, UFO proponents or kind of people who believe in alien visitation or whatever always come back to is, well, scientists think that there's something to this as well. And I mean, kind of, right? But not not in the way that they think, right? Not in this sort of sense of aliens are coming here and visiting. Um, how 
I guess I, I wonder to start with, how do you put those two? I don't know. How do you use SETI to kind of promote science while not treading into those kinds of more, I don't know, weird discussions with people who want to say, no, 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 aliens are here and whatever. Like, how do you keep that focused or how do you separate the two, I guess? Well, I don't think that there's any particular difficulty for me in doing that. I mean, it's sort of like, I don't know, being a medical doctor and, you know, there's also what's called alternative medicine and uh, you can talk sure. to those people too. I mean, I talk to UFO folk all the time, uh, just about every day. Somebody calls me up or sends me an email with a sighting or whatever, and I talk to them all. And I have to say that uh, I can't think of a single case where I, I believe that somebody was just pulling a hoax. So they're all very sincere. And uh, after all, they're, you know, this uh, a very large fraction of the population believes that. So I'm happy to talk to them about it, but it doesn't really, I don't think it influences my work terribly much because you know, the kind of experiments we do would be totally unsuited for finding anything that was buzzing the skies. So, uh, you know, it's it's kind of orthogonal to what we do. It's a, it's different altogether. Sure. When you when you discuss exobiology, right, can you kind of just define that term for listeners and kind of go over a little bit about what what that means? You're not talking about, of course, you know, it's you're talking about specifically how would biology or essentially how would a biological system work someplace other than earth? Correct. Yeah. Exobiology. That's, that's one of the terms that uh, was used uh, for quite a while actually, but today the preferred term seems to be astrobiology, which is kind of nutty. If you think about it, because it combines Greek and Latin in one word. So I don't know, but in any case, astrobiology is simply the study of life beyond earth. All right. And, and and not only, actually, it also includes things like, you know, finding planets around other star systems or even understanding how life got started on Earth. So it's the, the whole the question of what is the prevalence of life? OK, but most astrobiologists are focused on our own solar system. Now, it's not that they expect to find, you know, little green guys on Mars or anything. I mean, there was that expectation about 100 years ago, but not anymore. I, I think that the reason that they're so focused on our own solar system is that you can get really good data from our own solar's own solar system because you can send spacecraft to places like Mars or the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, those sorts of things. So there's actual data, uh, you know, thanks to the American taxpayer, thanks to NASA, and also the European taxpayers and others. So they have actual data to work with. They can, you know, analyze the clays on Mars. They can consider, you know, the possibility of sending a probe to one of the moons of Saturn and grabbing some of the material shot up through the surface of that moon that might actually tell you that there's something alive down below. The only difficulty with all that, well, it's not so much a difficulty, but maybe a downer, is that if we do find life on Mars or, you know, some of these moons, uh, it's very likely to be microscopic life. It's not going to be anything you can talk to, but of course, you can talk to it, but don't expect it to talk back. Whereas SETI <laughs> is, is more about, uh, you know, uh, finding intelligent life. Mm, okay. One one thing that's really interesting, and it's a quote that we I, – I don't know. The quote doesn't really fit in this case because, you know, like you said, we're not – it's not like we expect to go searching the – you know, underneath the soil in Mars and we're going to find a giant cave system or something, right? Um but one thing that's, I think, kind of fascinating or very interesting is, especially with 
especially with the search for uh, life out there in the universe, it would appear, at least from the outset, if you look at people's popular ideas of how this would happen, that we tend to kind of anthropomorphize that search, even even to the point of thinking, like you said, little green men, right? We presuppose that these things that we see will be like us in appearance or like us in cognition or, or any of these kinds of things. But even at the level of microbiology, right, um, is the current paradigm that we expect to find things? Like do we expect life to have kind of converged onto something like the forms of life we see here on Earth or is what astrobiology or SETI's astrobiology mission looking for more exotic than that, right? I mean, I, I'm just thinking about things like, say, um, silicone-based life forms, right, as opposed to carbon-based, or, um, I don't know, just changing what we consider life to be, or even fauna and flora in the first place. Um, how do you get around that challenge of, you might be looking for life in a way that's defined here on Earth, but you might miss what life is out there elsewhere. Well, Chris, you've hit upon a, a fundamental problem here, and that is we don't have any good definition of what life is. I mean, everybody thinks they, they know what things are alive and what aren't. Not so hard to tell if you're talking about the kind of life you find in the zoo or even the kind <laughs> of thing you find with a microscope, uh, unless you you know consider, well, what about that virus over there, Bob? Is it alive or is it not alive? You know, if it doesn't get into a cell, it doesn't do much. So- you know, most people think that life is well-defined because they took biology in, in high school, but all that course ever did was give you a, you know, a sort of a laundry list of things that living things do, like reproduce and metabolize and all that stuff. But, of course, you can find exceptions to all of this. So we don't have a good uh, definition of life. So maybe, you know, what we look for, which, of course, as you say, is somewhat similar to the kind of life we find here on Earth, you know, maybe that does miss the boat. Maybe there's life out there that, you know, we wouldn't see it and we wouldn't recognize it. Well, maybe, but it doesn't help very much to say that because you can't do an experiment if you have no idea what you're looking for, right? So you have to start somewhere. And where we start is we say, look, life is just a, a chemical process and it, it does, you know, maintain its its structure, its integrity. It mutates, it, you know, evolves uh, with the rules of Darwin, every, every life form is likely to do that. But uh, that's the, all we can do. We have to start with stuff we know rather than throwing up our hands and saying, it could be anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. We get that sometimes. We'll have people, we'll have listeners or, you know, fans of the show or whatever email us and ask things like, you know, well, what do you, what do you think about the idea that this is all just a simulation? And the way I, you know, the way I always answer that is, well, if it's simulation, who cares? Because, you know, there's nothing we can do about it and things seem to work a certain way in the simulation. So whatever. Right. Um, kind of that Descartes or, I don't know, brain in a box kind of argument of philosophy. One, um, So we, we have been doing for the past, I'd say about two months, we've been doing kind of a deep dive series on the history of the United States government kind of playing, I don't know, I guess playing footsie with uh, – weird research groups, right? So I'm talking about, we're, we're really talking about is sort of the work of Robert Bigelow, um, you know, and his work on supposed, you know, haunted ranches and psychic spies and all those kinds of things. Um, and how it kind of morphed into this modern group of To The Stars Academy, um, you know, for, com, forming from ATIP. Uh, 
one thing is someone whose background is in material science that we've kind of been, you know, asked about a lot and we've kind of fought against a lot is this idea that they have or, or the likelihood even that they have some kind of alien materials or things like that, right? They have something from a crashed ship or something that they're studying. Uh, I guess I, I would just love to hear what are your thoughts on what are your thoughts on To The Stars Academy? What are your thoughts on this new age of UFO disclosure, so to speak? Yeah, well, it's certainly interesting. I mean, I was as astounded as anybody else when I opened up my New York Times about a year and a half ago and found a front page story, admittedly below the fold, but nonetheless, <laughs> uh, you know, saying, oh, well, the Navy has uh, video footage and it had come out of this $22 million uh, project that, uh, you know, was funded largely thanks to Senator Harry Reid's interest in it. And of course, he's a senator from Nevada, and that may explain why Rob Bob Bigelow got involved. I, I know Bob Bigelow. He's you know a nice guy and all. So uh, you know I, I I don't know what to say about in the, you know having found uh, special materials that couldn't have been made on Earth. I mean people have been making that claim for decades and decades, and yet somehow it never shows up in the local museum. And you know they don't bring it to an to a chem a chem lab where it could be assayed. Where they put it through a mass spectrometer and say you know. This is this is just not anything from Earth. I mean, and one of the big accomplishments of astronomy in the past 500 years is to reliably demonstrate that the entire universe that we can see, you know, 10 billion light year away galaxies, they're all made out of the same stuff that we find here locally. It isn't that there's exotic uh, material that we can see anywhere else. So, you know, there is that. But if if. Bob Bigelow does have some material. Look at this, Ralph. I mean, this this is just not something that uh, anybody here on Earth could make. You know, well, we'll take it in, show it to somebody. You know, don't don't just I don't know create rumors by saying you have it. And I don't. I've not heard that he actually does that. I don't know that he actually says anything like that. But as far as to the Stars Academy goes, uh, I all I can say is I did read their prospectus. And uh, as far as I could tell, it was an entertainment company. That's all they really talked about in the prospectus. So, uh, you know, I have nothing against entertainment companies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's funny, right? They the initial. Um, yeah, the I think the entertainment side is kind of it's kind of an interesting thing, right? Because, I mean, again, like you said, who has a problem with entertainment companies, right? Like, that's totally cool. Um, one of their claims initially was the building of a spaceship, um, <laughs> which was, seems a little bit. Seems slightly, uh, what's the word? Uh, I don't know. I don't even know what the word is. Well, Elon Musk is doing it, so hey. he is doing it, and that's well, that's okay. So that's the interesting thing, or that's an interesting question, right? Is how there's been a lot of there has been a lot of discussion right now about people like say Elon Musk, Tom along these other uh, Robert Bigelow is a good example of this too, although Bigelow has been. I mean, I would argue one of the more successful. I mean, Elon Musk is very successful at this now as well, but, you know, Bigelow's got stuff on the space station. Um, hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. What do you think about 
private business like this getting into the space race? Do you do you see any issues with that? Do you have any? I don't know. Do you think it's good? Do you think it's bad? What, what are your what are your views? Oh, I think it's good. Of course, it's good. Look, uh, perhaps the least interesting part of space exploration is the transport. And up until now, only NASA could build rockets that would reliably put you know your your satellite into orbit or your next door neighbor into orbit or take uh, anybody or anything to the moon or Mars or whatever. But you know, things have changed in the past half century, and now private uh, organizations and private companies can build these rockets. And doggone it, that's exactly what you want. You don't want all the airplanes to be built only by the Wright brothers with with money from the U.S. Army. You want, you know, companies to spring up to build airplanes. Well, you want companies to spring up and build rockets, too. So that's all fine. I No problem with that. I think it's a good thing, and it relieves NASA of having to develop these big rockets, and they can concentrate on what's in the rockets, what's on the rockets, where are they going and what are they going to do? And, you know, if it's a commercial enterprise, again, NASA's not so interested in that. They don't have to do that. Private uh, private initiative will take care of that. But what only NASA will do is the science, for example, just to give you an example of, of things that, you know, the science is not terribly profitable for a company, whereas for NASA, it's part of the mission. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My 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 hope is that there'll be enough people who go out into space as tourists in my lifetime that I will feel as comfortable getting on a spaceship as I am getting on an airplane. That's my goal. <laughs> That's kind of, I guess, my own personal hope, you know, um, be able to go out there and look down at Earth. It'd be pretty awesome. Well, I mean, there are plenty of people who are looking at that as the first most obvious market for a private uh, spacecraft because, you know, tourists are willing to pay big bucks to get a good view uh, look at the you know cruise ship business. People don't want to be on the interior of the ship. So yeah, there's a market there, and I've heard plenty of uh, people in that business talking about tourism. But in the end, you know, it's uh, it's launching satellites, which is probably a a more lucrative uh, business for them, and they'll do that. And eventually, uh, you know, who who knows what they'll do? But mining asteroids, stuff like this. There there are real opportunities in space. And the only question is if you can hang on long enough to uh, turn a profit. So one question that one question that I think I'm sure you get plenty, and actually I think it might have been the title of one of your one of your talks, actually, um, is actually yes, it it was it was one of your TED it was one of your TED Radio Hour uh, sections. <laughs> Why should we search for ET? Why do you think that something like SETI is a is a worthwhile endeavor? Well, I think it's just curiosity, and that sounds somewhat superficial, but curiosity is not at all superficial. I mean, curiosity is what has driven essentially all exploration, not entirely. I mean, there are commercial uh, gains to be made from, you know, sailing west from Spain, for example, in the 1492 or whatever. But, you know, it, it was also curiosity. A lot of it was done just, you know, a, a la Captain Cook, right? He, he sails the South Pacific four times just mapping all the islands he can. And sure, you know, the British Admiralty had an interest in knowing what was out there. It was both strategic and economic to know that. But on the other hand, you know, for Cook, he was just interested in mapping all these places. And that's a good thing that he was. I mean, you think of, you know, well, my heroes, for example, are largely explorers because they're just going into the unknown, which is by itself is kind of uh, romantic. 
And, and they're largely doing it because they just want to know what's on the other side of the hill. So when it comes to looking for aliens, it's pretty much the same thing. Do you think that in do you think that you're going to find or do you think that SETI will find, you know, as they're searching and as our capabilities of searching to find this stuff get better and better? Do you anticipate that SETI will find something, will find evidence of, of life, whatever that might mean? Or do you think that it's likely that or do you or do you kind of follow more of a feeling of, say, the Drake equation where, um, you know, almost what we would consider to be life is such a such a small probability of occurring at any single point in the universe that the likelihood of us encountering it would be um, almost almost an impossibility. What, what's your take on that? Well, I certainly don't think the latter. I mean, obviously, if I did. Right. I mean, that would. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, no. Right. <laughs> but I mean, I don't think that there's any reason to think that either. I mean, there are people who object to the idea of life or maybe just intelligent life, but something like that. They object to it simply on. I don't know, uh, grounds of their religious beliefs or they just think that they're pretty important and consequently there couldn't be anybody equally important elsewhere. But, you know, what we've learned in the last 20 years is how common planets are, right? There are like a trillion of them in the Milky Way galaxy, and that's just one galaxy out of trillions of galaxies. So, uh, you know, the idea that, well, you know, sure, there's life here on Earth and yeah, eventually intelligence sort of sprung up but it's not going to happen anywhere else. That's 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 a suspicious argument, I would say. Right. It's one of those. I think. I think, like you said, right. It's it's almost an argument of of self importance for humans, right? To think that we are the only, um, or not just humans, but life on Earth in general, right? To think that we're the only planet with this specific mix of of qualities that made it amenable to life, or to think that life has to be like what we expected to be here on Earth, um, is yeah, very. I don't know, a very short-sighted view of things, I suppose. Yeah, well, there um, there are seven other places in our own solar system where there might be life. You know, that they have liquids, right? They have energy sources. Uh, they, they, they have what it takes to support life, right? I mean, if you took all the, if you took all the life on Earth, kind of an updated Noah's Ark scenario here, and you just threw it onto Mars— Right. I mean, most of it would be dead very quickly. Right. You know, the rhinos are not going to do well on the surface of Mars where they can't breathe and there's nothing to drink and it's freezing cold. But the microbes, some of them would do OK. I asked an astrobiologist this straight out years ago. I said, if we did that, if we just threw every living organism, samples of them uh, onto Mars and came back a year later, would any of them still be alive? And the answer was yes. That was it. That was the answer. Now, he might be wrong. But, you know, he's at least an informed individual on these matters. So uh, the idea that, you know, life is restricted to Earth when there are examples nearby of other places where life, earthly life could live, you know, just seems to stretch credulity to say this is this is not only a good place, it's the only place. So one question that I think is fascinating is the idea of sort of how will other fields of maybe the soft sciences, let's say, so things like, you know, philosophy, psychology, although psychology is becoming, psychology is like a traditionally considered one of those, if you ask philosophers of science, but I don't think there's any uh, psychologist who would consider what they do soft in any way. But um, uh, 
you know, those kinds of other sciences, right, that are outside of the kind of traditional realm of what we consider, you know, physics, chemistry, and biology, um, wondering these other fields of inquiry about how they will change or how will they respond to the discovery of life someplace else. So we just did a, we just did a series as well on Rachel Carson in Silent Spring and kind of talking about some of the stuff that she was discussing back then when she wrote it. And, and it's funny, one of her solutions that has worked extremely well in some cases to, you know, deal with, um, a, you know, the pest problem um, without using pesticides was the introduction of uh, predatory species, right? So, you know, you have, uh, you have a type of beetle that's ruining elm trees. And so you introduce a, a wasp or a, a gnat or something that eats those beetles. Um, and that worked great in some cases until it, until it didn't work so great anymore. Um, but that kind of framework or that sort of question, I guess, is one that I think a lot of our listeners would be very interested in something like, say, for instance, uh, you know, it's, it's 200 years in the future and we do discover uh, planets or something that are habitable or habitable for humans or habitable for life on earth. Would it be, I guess, or I suppose, would it be ethical or would it be something that we would even want to potentially do to move life off of Earth, right? Let's say one of these seven planets. Um, is, is there any kind of, I guess, I don't know, astrobiology uh, ethics, a- a- astrobiological philosophy going on? Are those kinds of questions that are those? I mean, I understand this kind of like putting the cart before the horse, right? You're worrying about what are we going to do when we discover life out there before we've even discovered it? But I don't know. Is that something that SETI concerns itself with? Is it something that researchers there are thinking about? Or is it something that's a little bit too – is it too far in advance that it's not really of a concern? Well, it may not be point? that far in advance. I mean we we may find life on a place like Mars, for example. We've been looking for life on Mars for a long time. Never found it. But uh, you know that could change in another 10 years, and and maybe we do find life. And so when you talk about sending people to Mars, which a lot of people are keen to do, um, you know, if that were to have an adverse effect on the indigenous population, even if that population is only, you know, sheets of microbes uh, two or three meters below the surface of Mars, the question is, so if we do find life on Mars, for example, under the sands of Mars, you know, do we have the right to sort of uh, just get rid of it because we're going to build our Mars colonies? You know, we're, we're just going to set up cities on Mars and, and all that pond scum under the dirt there. Well, it's just too bad. We wouldn't have given it a whole lot of shrift, if you will, back on Earth. And we're not going to give it a whole lot of shrift on Mars. Oh, sure. We'll we'll bottle some of it and, you know, study it and all. But, you know, we're, we're not going to keep ourselves from wiping a lot of it out. And so that is kind of an ethical uh, consideration there. And Different people have different ideas about it. And some people say, yeah, yeah, it's our destiny to do it. And others people say no. But one should keep in mind that there aren't too many places in the solar system uh, which would be nearly as nice as even the worst place on Earth. You know, you, most people aren't considering moving to Antarctica or central Greenland or something like that. And both of those places are probably better than Mars. Uh, so if, it would take a lot of work to live on any of these places. Certainly not going to solve the population problems or anything like that. There isn't enough acreage to do anything significant in that regard. So, yeah, you do have these moral considerations. And even here at the Institute, people worry not so much about the the ethics of these things, but more about, well, you know, are we likely to contaminate Mars with our spacecraft and introduce 
microbes that will mm. eat all the locals. Or maybe the reverse. We'll bring something back from Mars and it'll eat everybody here. Uh, both seem quite improbable, but on the other hand, you can't rule it out. Right. Yeah. No, it's good. Uh, good science fiction horror movie fodder, right? <laughs> the microbe that right. eat everything. Uh, so I guess kind of as a – one of the reasons that I was so excited to talk to you and one of the reasons why I thought it was so cool – to find you at an event like, let's say, AlienCon was one of our goals is to teach people science by discussing topics that they find interesting kind of at their at people's level. Right. So, you know, I don't know a lot of uh, the example I like to give is when I talk to my mom about what I did during my Ph.D. or even what I do in my daily work now, a lot of it is kind of over her. It's over her head. Right. She didn't study science. So, you know, I mean, I think when I was in my PhD, she, my mom told people that I was, I, I studied rocks, you know, which was kind of right, but you know, it's kind of right, sort of right. It's, but not exactly. Um, these topics though, when you talk to people about what do you, you know, do you, what do you think about UFOs? Right. And then, well, how do you think they fly and all this stuff? Suddenly people's faces light up. They love talking about this kind of stuff. The challenge, I think, is getting people interested in science in a way that that pseudoscience has been able to capture their minds with, right, or or kind of capture their imagination. How do you think we do that? How do you think science better outreaches to the public? Well, I, I certainly agree with you. I mean, people are very interested in the UFO phenomenon. One third of the American populace believes it's true. They think that we are being visited. Right. And that, that, that's a kind of a testimony to how interesting that story is. Right. And it has all the elements of a good story. It would be very interesting if we're being visited. And uh, after all, it you know invokes things like government cover ups and all this sort of stuff, which, of course, Americans are very big on conspiracy theories. Uh, but it's also true in, in Europe that about one third of the population believes this stuff. And there they are less inclined to think that the government is keeping stuff from them. But whatever. Uh, yeah, it would be really interesting. And uh, you can always use that as a hook to get people interested. I've certainly done that myself when I've gone to schools to talk to kids that were, you know, in, in middle school kids, for example. I mean, if you're talking to adults, you don't have this problem. But if you're talking to middle school students, they may not be paying attention until you can get their attention. And if you talk about, you know, UFOs or aliens or something like that, that does get their attention. They're interested. So uh, that's uh, that that's that's a good tool. Uh, but on the other hand, getting them interested in science, at some point you have to sort of tell them, well, how does the science, how does science determine whether something is likely to be true or not? And there you can also actually use the UFOs, in my opinion, because I don't think the evidence is very good. But, you know, it's sure. uh, it's maybe a useful uh, teaching moment to bring in the UFOs. Yeah, no, I think it's it's actually one of my favorites. It's really funny. My Two of my little cousins. So all of my all of my cousins think they uh, they they did not. You know, some of them. It's funny. Some of my little cousins loved when I worked in a lab and I had a lab coat and the goggles and everything, and they thought it was so cool. Um, but then the other, you know, the other ones were like, ah, it's yeah, it's cool, but whatever, right? But now with the podcast, they love they love the podcast. They like you know the logo. They like all the other stuff. And uh, I was over for. I forget what it was for. It must have been some kind of, you know, some kind of, uh, I don't know, childhood you know, coming of age event. Right. I think one of my one of my cousins, I think, was getting uh, was, was going through Holy Communion or something. But um, 
I was in the basement playing a kind of a, a who's who game with one of them. And I was trying to explain that this was the way that uh, this was the way that people like psychics and stuff. This is the kind of trick they do to tell about, you know, trick people into thinking they're speaking to their relatives or something. Right. Is that it's just a guessing game and they're, they're very good at guessing. And just like, you know, if you count the number of uh, you count the number of who's who cards here that have white hair, there's only two of them. So that's a bad guess, right? So you wouldn't guess white hair to start with. You'd guess brown or blonde or something. And my one cousin was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. And I mean, you know, she's like 12, so she wasn't really super interested. But the other one just told me, well, no, that's that's uh, that's witchcraft. That's just magic. And the whole argument was done. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, no. <laughs> How do you come back against that? Um Oh my goodness. And I, but I find that that happens sometimes with the public where anti anti science I guess or sort of anti um I don't know anti anti academic feeling or anti scientific feeling seems to be growing in the United States at least. How do you think we combat that? Do you think it is just science outreach? Do you think we just need to get better at talking? Well, that certainly doesn't hurt. Put it that way. I, I don't know that it'll solve the problem because we've been doing it for a long time. And the percentage of uh, the public that believes in very unscientific things hasn't really changed a heck of a lot. So you could say, well, it hasn't solved the problem. Now, of course, you don't know what would have happened if you hadn't done all that outreach. Maybe things would have gotten worse. That's, that's possible. I mean, sometimes things do get worse. But, you know, I don't think that this this phenomenon gets a lot of press these days uh, because we have better techniques for measuring it. But I'm sure that it was also true a thousand years ago and maybe more true. I mean, people were very unscientific for most of uh, the history of Homo sapiens. And that's because we're critters and uh, critters are wired for survival, not for, uh, you know, rationality or anything like that. So... Uh, I, th I think it's a tough problem. I think that the only solution is really the long-term solution, of course, is uh, with the school system. But that's very difficult to to fix because school systems, at least in this country, you know, they're all locally run. They're not. Uh, we don't have the kind of national uh, school curricula that uh, they do in Europe, for example. And so, you know, you can only the school you get is the school that the local government wants you to have. And so it's very difficult to make ma massive changes. I, I personally remain optimistic about all this. I think people are slightly more rational than they were when I was a kid. Mind you, it was more fun when I was a kid, but what the heck? Uh, so, <laughs> so, so, yeah, keep doing the outreach. I mean, you never know. Maybe the whole thing would go to heck in a handbasket if you didn't. True. Very true. Yeah. You know, it's I guess it could be worse. We could be being called out as like wizards or something, right? And burned at stakes. <laughs> so things have gotten better, which is great. Well, I don't news. know if they've gotten better, but right. but but my my subjective impression is that things have gotten better. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really a pleasure to talk to you again. Um, I hope someday we can have you on again here soon. Uh, listeners, we have been talking today with Dr. Seth Shostak. Uh, so he currently hosts Big Picture Science the SETI Institute's weekly radio show. So go check it out. Um, bunch of books out there, articles, things, uh, different talks and everything. Just been a complete pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Anything you'd want the listeners to go check out? How about a book from the library? Perfect. That would be my recommendation. <laughs> That's great. Oh, good stuff. All right. Thanks again. And thank you listeners for uh, tuning into the Mad Scientist podcast. 
Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at MadScientistPod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.